Uh, so now it's a light topic after lunch uh, <laughs> to keep you all interested and awake. It's my pleasure to introduce uh, Louis Fasira, who is a professor in the finance unit and also a senior associate dean for executive education at the business school here at Harvard. Uh, we don't usually read out bios, but there's a couple of things I want to um, just read out to present you to uh, his uh, authority on these topics. So um, Lewis has received um, several awards recognising his contributions to the theory and practice of asset management including the 2012 TIA Kreft Paul Samuelson Award, the 2005 Graham and Dodd Award by the CFA Institute, the 2004 Prize for Financial Innovation of the Q Group and uh, Europe and UK, and more recently the 2014 Arthur Wager Award by the Society for Financial Studies. So he is very well versed in these topics. Um, Lewis is going to give a presentation and then we're going to turn over to table discussion before coming back to um, have some Q&A. So please join me in welcoming Lewis Vasira. Thank you, Amanda. Good afternoon, everyone. Good afternoon, everyone. It's a, it's a heavy topic for the afternoon, so I want you awake. <laughs> please bear with me. So. Um, let me see if I can get the, uh, this thing to work. All right, so, you know, I think uh, it's not news to this, uh, to, this, to this room that, you know, we are living, markets have done well, but at the same time, because we are all forward-looking and thinking, well, how do we are going to find our liabilities? The environment actually looks as tough as has ever been in the past. Very especially for people who need to fund liabilities, which is everyone in this room, whether they are pension liabilities or you are targeting absolute returns because you had to fund your universities, your foundations, et cetera, et cetera. And the reason why we kind of are pessimistic with this, uh, with this thing is because, you know, asset classes look expensive by historical standards. And as we know, it's not like alternatives have done very well in the last five years, particularly hedge funds. And, and forward-looking is not that we expect and they are going to save the, the day for, for everyone in this room. You know, I, also, you, everyone in this room is, is familiar with this, but I think uh, this is a good reminder of how things have changed in just in 25 years. This is just the yield curve. You know, in 1995, you know, I was just doing this with my students a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking about how Uncle Sam could... Or Uncle Jack, who found you know, his, his pension, right, in 1995 versus how he could do it today. In 1995, it was a very easy game, right? 8%, sorry, right? And that was an amazing world to be. But today, Uncle Jack or Sam or you name it, it is looking more like a 2%. So this is like a nightmare for everyone who is an asset owner or, or a saver. So lots of, you know, huge decline in, in long-term interest rates, right? And by the way, I also want to point out something, which I think is going gonna, is gonna to be related to my, my talk today, which is, you know, we need to forget about the, uh, the short end of the yield curve because this is mostly driven by Fed policy. The long run of the yield curve, the long end of the yield curve, the medium end, that's much harder for the Fed to do it. They need to go to extreme measures like QE and all of that to try to influence that, and it's not clear they are successful at doing that. One thing that has happened is the yield curve has become also much flatter over time. 
these yield curves in 2001 were much flatter, you know, and if you look at the, you know, this is a July 10, 2018, a year later in 2019, and then one, you know, just one month later, early September of 2000. So much flatter, much flatter uh, yield curves. The third thing which I think is interesting and important to look at is, for at least in recent time, is the long-term rates have become more volatile. Look, for a, you know, there's only five weeks in between July 30th and September 6th, and look at the change in the yield curve. So you know, that's a, at that you know, level, and with that kind of duration, that's actually pretty, pretty important. So much more volatile uh, interest rates and a much flatter yield curve, and of course, levels which are ridiculous for anyone who is an, an asset owner. So is this period something we have seen ever in, in, in history? Actually not, right? So, you know, it's true that, you know, this is lower, this is uh, lower rates, uh, long-term interest rates going all the way to, uh, you know, back to 1871 in the United States. And, uh, you know, this is where we are now. You could argue this looks more like if the world was up, up, up till the 1950s, but even by those standards, interest rates are much lower, much lower uh, today. And the most important thing is you could argue, well, 1995, there was a lot more inflation. There was a lot more inflation volatility. Maybe interest rates needed to be higher. But I'm just going to bring that to your attention, which is real rates, this is the 10-year tip, have also become extremely low. So it's not just inflation is much muted today and inflation expectations are much muted today. Actually, real rates have, have dropped quite considerably from you know, just back to in the early 2000s, when we're looking at things around the two and a half, three percent, all the way to basically zero or even negative at some at some period. So this is actually does have, doesn't have any inflation in it. This is just real interest rates. So I want to you know bring to that another related change in the markets, which is a big change in in what I call bond risk. You know, you go back to the uh, you know the early yeah, you know 80s or 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 90s or or, or or the 70s. You know, there was this thing that uh, Fisher Black used to say. You know, the stock bond correlation is 0.3. We just don't know what the sign is. <laughs> so this is essentially what uh, you know we have had in recent times, which is used to be very positive. And so, you know, you think about the 80s and, and 70s and 90s when, you know, the economy was tanking, the flight to quality and the flight to liquidity was not at all into long-term bonds, was actually into uh, cash or commodities. This is not quite this, this, what has happened in the last 20 years. In the last 20 years, you know, there's been a huge negative correlation between stocks and bonds. That has to stay there. This is a phenomenon that happened in the, in, the, in, the 19, in the late 1990s. And the flight to quality today actually goes from any other asset class into, the, into treasuries. Not treasury bills, not cash, into treasuries. And, you know, we are now, the meaning of that is we are all used to see treasury bonds as basically hedgers. And that's not quite how they were considered consider it uh, just 20 years, 20 years ago and before that. So this is the, uh, you know, the, uh, the stock bond correlation in the United States, you know, from, from the 1960s, from 1960 all the way to basically a few days ago. 
And as you can see, you know, we had a correlation. This is the, what uh, Fisher Black used to say, a correlation of 40%, and then a correlation of minus 40%, right? And that has stayed quite stable. You know, this is uh, using daily data and aggregating at a quarterly frequency, so you have a lot of short-term volatility in, in, the, in, in the correlation, but you need to look at the trends, and the trends were, you know, relatively low in the, in the 60s, then in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, fairly high around uh, between 40% and 60%, and then, you know, we have been more in the, in the minus, between minus 40 and minus 60% ever since uh, uh, the late uh, 1990s. This has, uh, you know, is that, also, is that only a, a U.S. phenomenon? Actually not. This is actually looking at most other developed markets. You know, the switch in the sign of the stock bond correlation has been quite big. This is Australia, Canada, France, Germany, Japan, the U and the U.K. And, you know, Back to the 1990s, we don't have data before that, but you know you can see a big drop, you know, into negative territory and staying there pretty much consistently for the last, the last, the last 20 years. This is actually has, as everyone in this room knows, very important implications for how you think about how you position your portfolios and your asset allocation, which is the primary factor that drives your performance. You know. Bonds have become hedgers in endowment portfolios and liabilities in pension portfolios. But also, you know, the negative stock bond correlation exacerbates shortfall risk in any pension fund if it is invested in equities. And that's the perfect storm that had driven every pension fund in this, in this, in this country that, and in, in the UK and many other, in, in the Netherlands and every other, every other uh, developed world, developed economy, developed market pension, pension systems since, since 2000. Led to the bankruptcies of, the, uh, of, you know, of this, this legacy cost in, uh, you know, for the steel companies, for the airline companies, etc. And those of you who are managing public pension funds, you know, you know that your true liability is what they are, and you know what, how much underfunding all, all you have. You have been able to escape that, but the corporates have not been able to, to escape that. It also had very big implications for uh, bond prices, which is back to the point I was trying to make before, which is because bonds are seen as hedgers by the market, risk premia or term premia are lower today, and in fact, some people like us argue they have been negative. Very high term premium. This is just risk premium on the long end of the yield curve. Very high premium of around 1% back in the 80s and 90s, and about minus 40 basis points you know, on average, minus 30 basis points on average in the last, in the last 20 years. That you know, pushed down the long end of the yield curve, and it has stayed there. That's what you know, one big factor has been responsible for this flattening of, of, the, uh, of, the, of, the, of the yield curve. You know, and the question is, what has changed this seismic change in, in how the bond market correlates and moves with the, uh, with, with, the, uh, with, the, uh, with the stock market? You know, you were, you know, in, in the 1980s, you can actually go before that, but that's what we can document today very fairly well. You know, in the 1980s to the 1990s, every time you had a recession, you tended to have inflation going up. That's the famous name for that was stagflation was the, was the thing. Real rates actually also rose, 
mostly because there was very aggressive and anti-inflationary monetary policy that would raise the, the, the rate very quickly, and that led to actually real rates going up. And indeed, investors flee to quality who was into commodities and cash, not in, into, into bonds. All of those factors drove the price of treasuries down, and therefore, stocks tended to move, um, uh, treasuries tended to move positively with, 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 with stocks and would not be good hedgers. And in fact, you know, the fleet to quality effect and the real interest rate effect, if you, we had had tips back in the, in the 80s and, and early 90s, that would have also driven down the price, the price of, of tips. In, since 2000, things have been actually quite different. Since 2000, the macro trends, and they come one time after another, and they have been happening, been playing down actually this last week. When the economy weakens and we are going into a recession, you tend to see inflation falling as well. So deflationary risk is what uh, characterizes the cycle today. Very different from the 80s and 90s and 70s. Real rates actually also tend to decline. And the flee to quality happening to treasuries, not into cash. Right? And of course, all of that drive the price of treasuries up. And they, you know, these two last factors also drive the price of tips up. This is a, you know, a, a, a way of, of, of seeing that, that to see how the macro economy is connected to the, to the to capital markets in ways that you know, are kind of interesting, which is, you know, if you look at the correlation of the inflation output gap since 2000, and in fact, you know, when I say estimated break, break here is what I mean, that is a statistically very significant difference, statistically very significant. The, out, the inflation output gap correlation has been in the last 20 years about 65%. Before that period, actually it was more like minus 30%. So this is a huge change and that actually change is connected to very positive stock bond correlation back to, you know, all the way. This is from 1980 in, uh, you know, what, what happened in, in capital markets. And then, you know, after that, a strong negative correlation between stocks and, 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 and bonds. So the two, you know, what I'm trying, I'm going to argue is that this change in macro dynamics is responsible for what we have seen in the uh, in the stock and bond markets. And in order for us to understand how we position our portfolios for the next 10 years, the next five, five, next five years, you need to have a view of where that correlation is, is gonna be. So the main thing that, you know, is, is, uh, that has happened is a big change in the relative importance of supply shocks and demand shocks in the US economy and in most developed economies and also a big change in how monetary policy is conducted. There's these two factors are actually helping to explain all of that. The 70s and 80s and up to the early 90s, supply shocks were the dominant source of volatility in the macro, in the macro economy. But since 2000, demand shocks are the driving force of changes in, uh, in, 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 in growth and in the business cycle. And also, you know, monetary policy has changed quite a bit, you know, with Volcker coming in and then Greenspan in his first, uh, you know, half of his mandate, you know, 
the, the thing that was driving monetary policy in the United States and also happened in other central banks around the world in, developing econ in developed economies was very aggressive counterinflationary policy. At the smallest, the only thing that the central bank, the Fed, was caring about was getting inflation under control. The earliest sign of you know, inflation not being a target immediately led to a very aggressive crisis in, 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 the, in the Fed funds rate. But that has changed quite a bit. It's the Fed and you, you know, the second, starting in 1998, essentially with Greenspan and then his successors, there is a focus on inflation, but there's also a focus on fighting recessions. And we know that there have been a monetary policy which is quite more accommodating and which is more, you know, more gradual in how they, appro they, approach, they approach things. And that, you know, that leads to also a, a, a less, you know, counter cyclical real interest rates because they don't move as aggressively in raising interest rates when inflation is coming back. So one way to understand how that connects to, to how the bond market and the treasury market could move is, you know, this classical Econ 101 Phillips curve kind of thing, which is, you know, think about, you know, when, you know, demand shocks are the main dominant source of macro variation in the economy. Usually what you have is, you know, bad times or recessions, you know, tend to come with low inflation, right? And so in that kind of world, which is the world where we have lived in the last 20 years, and we were living a little bit of that in the 50s and 60s, inflation tend to be procyclical, and the downside risk actually is deflation, right? And why is that? Because, you know, in bad times, equities are not going to do well, but because inflation is also, you know, coming down uh, big time, actually treasuries do quite well. And this is what we have been observing in the last 20 years. Every time we have a recession, inflation is coming down. That's good news for treasuries. Treasuries actually tend to do uh, very well. Treasuries or, you know, tend to behave as hedgers of, of recessions, you know, in, because inflation is procyclical. And as you know, you know, they pay you your coupon. If inflation is lower, the real value of the coupon goes, goes up. So treasuries have become as hedgers Will, be, will behave as hedgers when demand shocks are, you know, what the, the driving force of the business cycle. And, you know, they, they, we move sort of along this stable Phillips curve. Now, what happened as we had in the 80s up to the early 90s and, and, and the 70s, we had this issue with a, a Phillips curve that was very unstable. In other words, supply shocks were the dominant force. In that kind of world, what do you have? In, bad, in recessions, Right? What you have is the, you know, the Philip curve just moving up. So you, you don't have the client, a, a, a corresponding, you know, you were around here, you, you came out of recession. If, the, if, if, the, if it was caused by the demand shock, you would also get inflation coming down, prices coming down. But instead, what you have is because it's a supply shock, you tend to have low output and higher inflation, or inflation is not coming down as much. In that kind of world, the downside risk priced by the treasury markets is stagflation. Inflation is countercyclical, and what you're going to have is that treasuries are very risky assets to hold. So you know they are adding risk to your portfolio. They are not get, they are not subtracting risk to your portfolio unless you know, of course, you are short treasuries, which is what you happen in a in a in a in a pension fund. 
then equities are good for your assets, unlike what happens in the, in the, in, in, when the demand shocks are the dominant force. So to that, you know, we have, of course, investor behavior that basically amplify this phenomenon. When bonds are safe, like in the last 20 years, the flight to quality is to treasury bonds and away from stocks, what you're gonna have is the macro forces drive the treasury market to do better in recessions. And because in investors are flocking to treasuries, which is what we tend to observe these days when we have bad news, that makes the price of, of treasuries to go even higher or interest rates to go even lower. And that actually exacerbates the uh, negative stock bond correlation. 70s, 80s, early 90s, the flight to quality is a wave both from, from, from stocks and from bonds. So what you have is the macro forces as driving treasuries and bond and, and stocks quite in, and the stock market in the same direction in recessions and the fly away from treasuries and from stocks into cash that actually makes, exacerbates the effect. The treasury bond market actually falls even more or in other words, interest rates rise even more than what's guaranteed by macro, macro conditions. So always investor behavior is an amplification mechanism as we know, but can work both ways. And in the last 20 years, it has worked by increasing, uh, making the stock bond correlation even more negative than macro conditions would probably guarantee. So the question is then what, how to think about the future. Um, and as long as, you know, demand shocks are the driving force, I think, uh, and, you know, monetary policy continues to be credible in its ability to control inflation, I think the expectation we should have is that inflation is going to continue to be procyclical. Inflation expectations are going to be anchor. The risk that is going to be priced in the treasury market is going to be a deflation risk, which means bonds will continue to be hedgers and the level of interest rates will stay low. At least on the term premium will stay negative and will keep pushing the long end of the curve down, not, not upwards. You know, you need to think about, you know, in that kind of world, the general level of interest rates could go up, but that can only go up if we have demand shocks that are positive. In other words, if we escape this, you know, what Larry Summers called this, you know, this, um, low lack of growth and lack of demand that, that, that we have. But even, you know, if the level of interest rates go up, we would expect still to have a yield curve that would be relatively, relatively flat, and the bond market to actually be a good hedger of, of, the, uh, of, the stock, of the stock market. The only thing that can change things is what could cause supply shocks to be into the, into the picture. Of course, you know, you need to think about, you know, what could drive supply shocks today, right? You know, and you need to, for that to be a, a few things to happen, you know. One way to do that would be the, the Fed losing credibility. And I think that's a major risk that this, we have in the, in the economy today. It hasn't happened, but we are seeing that, you know, it's a, it's a very strong effort in the U.S. to undermine the Fed from the federal government. And uh, some signals of that that we are seeing in other, in other, in other economies. 
If that's the case, and then we start having supply shocks, inflation will become uh, counter-cyclical. I'm sorry, I, I, inflation expectation will start to be anchored. Stagflation risk will be price in the bond market, and you'll start having the, the treasury market moving with equities in sync. In other words, when the, world, the, world, the market goes down, the equity market goes down, the, stock market, the, the treasury market will also go down, and the level of interest rates will rise. That is uh, you know, a possibility that could happen, and what could drive that? One, of course, one, one factor into that would be the central bank, in the, in the case of the United States, the Fed losing credibility. That would create help with the, some of these phenomena. And you know, I think it's very hard to think that energy shocks, like in the 70s, are going to be the, the thing that could bring, bring stagflation back. I don't think there is a, you know, we are in a world that is much more energy efficient than it was in the 70s and 80s. There's a lot less dependence on oil. There's oil production everywhere in the world now. So that a factor doesn't seem to be, energy doesn't seem to be like a, a driving force for you know, bringing stagflation big time today. But of course, you know, what could bring stagflation today is a full-blown you know, trade war. You know, I just put it for my own curiosity, uh, a bunch of electronics in my Amazon account a few months ago. And uh, you, know, you get these emails when the prices are changing. And believe me, they are changing. So we are seeing inflation coming up, at least on that. On that. I just wanted to see what the, the, the effect of the tariffs are, are. And in fact, I'm seeing some of these things coming up sometimes by $100 and $200, and it's obvious that is the effect of tariffs. So I think that's the main, you know, either a weakened Federal Reserve could act as a stagflationary shock, or a full-blown trade war could be the two phenomena that could bring a positive stock bond correlation and a higher level of interest rates. But I think that would be like the worst way of bringing interest rates back to more normal levels. I think that would be a nightmare for everyone in this, in this, in this, in this room. I think uh, you know, a much better way to bring that would be to work on you know, how we bring demand up in a world where demand is quite, is, is quite weak. That still preserves the best thing, that bonds keep being hedgers, and we would go to more you know, normal level of interest rate that stop you know, being quite an, a nightmare for every saver in this room or outside people saving for the DC, in their DC funds, et cetera, et cetera. So let me, uh, let me conclude in here, and then we can move to questions. I think there's going to be some discussion. In, in. I would be very interesting hearing your views on how you see these things. But you know, this is, uh, at the end of the day, asset allocation is the first driver of your performance. And uh, to some extent, that is kind of the fundamental correlation that uh, that uh, we all need to think about. I don't know how many of you invest in Bridgewater and get the daily observations, but you will see very, like this one monthly daily observation is about how this correlation is moving. They're quite aware that this is actually a, a first order effect that we need to be aware of and think how, you know, where it could move. A sudden switch in this thing could have disastrous effects for everyone in this room, I think. All right. Thank you, Louis. Thank you.